The following message is from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. For more information, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com. Uh, so this is our uh, last sermon for this month's August Refresh series, and it's on anxiety and peace. And uh, one, of the, one of the things that I like to come across in my Christian life is uh, our paradoxes. What I mean by that are, are two truths that seem to pull against one another. They seem to push or pull in opposite directions. And it happens that there is one of these paradoxes that I think I've found at the heart of, in, this, in Scripture, at the heart of the topic of anxiety. And it's this. God wants you to be, on the one hand, more in touch with reality, and at the same time, more at peace about it. So said differently, God wants you to be more aware of the good, the bad, and the ugly of all of life. And at the very same time, he wants you to grow in the peace that you have about it. This is unique. Eastern religions say that we overcome anxieties and things like that by detaching from the world in meditation. Prosperity theologies and American culture tell us that we need to overcome our anxieties by just getting rid of our problems. But the God of the Bible says no. We overcome our anxieties by staring our troubles in the face, like an old Western showdown or duel. And how we go about doing that is what this sermon's about. So we're going to look at uh, two verses today, Philippians 4. 6 through 7. I really encourage you to turn there because we're going to look super closely at these two verses. And, and here's what we're going to see from these verses. First point, God prohibits worrying. Second point, God prescribes prayer. And lastly, God promises his peace-filled presence. And here's the main takeaway from those, those three points that we'll, go, we'll hit as we go. Pray to the God who is near, and his peace will guard you. Pray to the God who's near, and his peace will guard you. So before we jump in, I'm going to pray for us as we dive into God's word. Father, you are kind to speak into this world, to speak truth, to speak light, and to speak peace. And Lord, as we open up... um, the Bible and and look hard at two verses this morning. I pray that you would be speaking into our hearts, that you would be shining the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ in each of our hearts, and that you would wake us up to the goodness of your truth and your peace. Praise in your name. Amen. So very quickly, just a place where we are in Philippians, you know, New Testament letters are not just lists of do's and don'ts. And this is a letter from Paul to the Philippian church that's about gospel partnership. And it's about persevering in the Christian race until the finish line. And so when we come to these verses at the end of, of, or in the middle of chapter 4, Paul is giving quick-hitting commands about the fundamentals of the Christian life. So that's where we are in verse 6. So point one, God prohibits worry. And let's start reading verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything. Stop. This is the first point. God prohibits worry. And we're going to camp here. 
for the entire first point of the sermon. And let's start by defining our terms. Here's how one respected Christian counselor distinguishes anxiety from fear. Quote, while fear refers to the experience when a car races toward us and we just barely escape, anxiety or worry is the lingering sense after the car has passed that life is fragile and we are always vulnerable. So anxiety is a vague sense of apprehension or dread that kind of sticks to us. And it comes from anywhere and it comes from everywhere in life. So if that's what anxiety is, what does anxiety look like? It affects our minds, it affects us physically, it affects us behaviorally. In our minds, maybe we get distracted. Maybe we end up wasting time making bad decisions. Physically, the distinguished philosopher uh, Eminem, maybe you've heard of him in ancient uh, records, he helps us uh, think about the, the physical effects of anxiety with one of his popular songs. And here it is. Yo, his palms are sweaty, knees weak, arms are heavy, there's vomit on his sweater already, mom's spaghetti. So those are some of the physical effects of anxiety. Um, and then behaviorally, so it affects us our, ment our mental health, our, our physical well-being, and behaviorally. Maybe we overeat, undereat, try and find therapy by shopping. So that's what it is, anxiety. That's what it looks like. And um, again, we can be anxious about everything. We are anxious about everything. Money, food, clothing, housing, the future, health, death. Witness before unbelievers, service inside the church, outside of the church, dating relationships, kids, retirement, and on and on and on. And what I want to do right now is I want to pause and give you guys a few seconds of, uh, of silence. And I want us to pray and think about what are those things in our life that keep coming up and that we're always anxious about. And I'm going to pray for you because I want us to have those things at the front of our mind as we try and wash ourselves with God's word. So just take a few minutes or seconds. So we've tried to give some color and some definition to the concept of anxiety, and now we're going to work hard to meditate on this command. Paul says, do not be anxious about anything. Or another English translation uses the word worry. Don't worry about anything. And I'll be using those interchangeably. And immediately, the, just the fact that this is a command will begin to challenge some of our assumptions about anxiety. In our highly pathologized and psychoanalyzed culture, we can think about anxiety, and it's often talked about as a plague, something totally out of our control, something that, that hits us like lightning or we catch like the flu. But the mere fact, again, that Paul is giving a command should make us realize that it, is, it can't just be something that hits us. It can't just be something that happens to us. And I want to make what's hopefully a helpful distinction between the rise of feelings of uncertainty and our response when that happens. 
the rise of feelings of uncertainty are kind of like a check engine light appearing on the dashboard of our car. We all know the feeling when that happens. We're like, oh, do I need to go check it out? Should I just ignore it? But when that happens, kind of like a check engine light, we, it helps us to see that all is not right in the world. All is not as it should be in, in us and in the world. Let's put it this way. You have lots of good reasons for the rise of the feelings of uncertainty because everything in life is uncertain. Every detail. But though the rise of these feelings may be outside of our emotional control, we are responsible for the response that we give. We're responsible for our response to those feelings. Um, and Paul is uh, that. Uh, sorry. And so, what Paul is saying here is that any time you begin to feel the uncertainties of life coming rising up in you, don't respond with worry. And remember, this is a command, which means that to respond to the uncertainties of life with worry is wrong. It's a sin against God. And if that wasn't bleak enough, it's comprehensive. It's fret, nothing. So we have to ask, why? Why is something that is so easy and something that seems so natural to the human experience, why is it prohibited by God? Why is it a sin? And to answer that, we have, we're going to consider what the Bible says about the source and about the nature of our worrying. Where does worry come from? The Bible says it comes from our hearts. Like we said, though the rise of uncertainty comes kind of from our circumstances, the response of anxiety comes from inside of us. We have expectations. We have desires. We want control. And when life shows us that all of our expectations are not going to be met, we willfully respond with worry. Second, God says, that the nature of anxiety is unbelieving idolatry. So we're considering why anxiety is a sin. A, because it comes from within us, and B, because it is unbelieving idolatry. So I, what is idolatry? Idolatry is worshiping a god or something that's other than the god of the Bible, the god of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We read it in our Exodus passage. That's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. The second commandment. You shall have no graven images. And so in its most overt forms, in its most obvious forms, idolatry is literally bowing down or literally praying to something that is not God. In its most secret forms, which is probably what most of us struggle with, it's making a god out of a person, out of an ideal, out of a goal or an object in our hearts. Nobody sees it. <clears throat> and uh, we give that thing our hopes and our joys and our peace. We look to those things. And all forms of idolatry at, at bottom are unbelief. We don't believe that God has said, I am your highest and surest good. And we, we instead, we, we don't trust that and we look to something other than God for our joy and our peace and all the things that we long for deep down in our bones. So I want to put some flesh on this. What, 
like unbelieving idolatry, kind of like we don't bow down to things typically. So uh, right now, my wife and I are uh, looking for housing. We are in a temporary situation, um, and we're looking for things in Henniker, hopefully. And uh, we have battled anxiety over this. Um, where you live, especially for my wife, who's home with our, our two kids, raising our two kids day in and day out, is, is an important thing. And so day after day, almost, we are, we are finding in ourselves like a lot of disappointment and a lot of impatience over the fact that we don't have something lined up. And so what that is, is a, is a question of ultimacy. When we find in our hearts that we are struggling to get through our day because of this thing, it shows that our ulti- we're ultimately in ways looking to this housing question for our joy and for our peace. And so we place issues in our life, pro- real problems in our life, on this pedestal or in this place where we only should be placing God. So that's why worry is wrong, because we're pl- replacing things where God only should sit on that throne. And this, again, is in distinction from the many voices that tell us that anxiety is like the flu. And in this case, the best we can do is just stave it off or manage it. But, I, but as quickly as I say that, I want to make one quick qualification. Humans are both body and soul, and both our bodies and our souls suffer from the effects of the fall, which means that when we talk about fighting anxiety, some of us will suffer from real bodily imbalances um, that make us more prone to extreme anxiety or unusual patterns of anxiety, which means that for some of us, medication is a real blessing when it comes to fighting anxiety. And so whether you take medication for this, or whether you've considered it, or, or whether that's not on your radar, what this passage is calling us to is to think about anxiety as fundamentally a spiritual issue that deals both with our bodies and our souls. It's not something that's merely chemical. It's not something that merely a pill will solve. And if you have more questions about your specific situation, I would encourage you to talk to to Jacob or leadership here um, and just seek with them the Lord's will. How can I be a Christian and faithful to to, um, treating anxiety and talking about it like the Bible does? So wrapping up this first point, God is commanding you today, do not be worried about money. Don't be worried about your health. Don't be worried about death, about food, about clothing, about retirement, about school, about the future, about anything. And so um, maybe at this point, we have a mix of hopefulness and hopelessness in our hearts. Maybe hopefulness because because we realize if God commands this, I actually have a choice in the matter. And maybe hopelessness because... Maybe you struggle with anxiety every day. Maybe you struggle with anxiety every hour. But this isn't all that God tells us. God isn't like a bad counselor where you come in and he just says, stop it. And so let's go to the next point um, and let's move on in the verse. So the second point is God prescribes prayer. So what does the, the, next, verse, the next part of the verse say? But in everything, 
by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. See first that the, um, the comprehensiveness of the prohibition in the first part of the verse, fret nothing, is matched here with pray about everything. As one commentator puts it, the way to be anxious about nothing is to be prayerful about everything. And this draws attention to our call to action. Pray, pray, and pray. Paul says it three different ways. Prayer, supplication, and make your requests known. And the threefold injunction is meant to emphasize the importance of prayer and all the different kinds of ways that we go to God in prayer. For as many ways as anxiety pops up in our life, there is a way to bring it to the Lord in prayer. We pray for others. We pray for ourselves. We ask on the fly. We ask sitting in quiet. We plead with God. We joyfully ask God, and the list goes on. The way that Paul says it in Ephesians 6 is, pray at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and all supplication. God wants us to know that all kinds of prayer are always in play when it comes to fighting anxiety. And one particular way that we need to remember to pray is confession. Remember, prayer, or worry is a sin. And so when we come to God, we need to admit that we're wrong in our worry. And as a kind of a side note, we need to be doing that with one another. Uh, the Christian life is not lived in only one direction, me and God. It's lived it's vertically and horizontally. And we need to be confessing our anxiety and our other problems and sins to each other. That's God's design for the Christian life. And so what's this like? I think Peter, in 1 Peter 5, helps us to kind of give a mental picture of what it's like to um, turn to, to the Lord when we are tempted to anxiety. He says, cast all your anxieties on God. When feelings of uncertainty begin to rise in us, it's like someone's handing us a big, heavy, dirty trash bag full of anxiety. And when God says, when he commands, don't worry about anything, he's saying, don't just stand there with that big bag of nasty trash. And when he says, in everything, let your request be made known to me, he's saying, take your bag of trash and chuck it in the dumpster. The commands of God are good. Psalm 119, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. Why? Because being commanded to cast our anxious burdens on God is far better than holding on to them with a pocket full of gold. So God prohibits worry, and he prescribes prayer. And see how the prescription of prayer perfectly matches the problem. When a physical therapist assigns exercises to a patient, they do so knowing the precise way that the movements will correct the problem. So how does prayer correct the problem of the temptations to anxiety or the problem of unbelieving idolatry? When we pray, we do the action that forces us to believe God and worship God as God. When we pray to God, we are turning from a world of uncertain things to the only certain thing. When we pray, we are emphatically declaring in our words and our deed that what we need is God's presence. 
And maybe we're even asking for control. Maybe we're even asking for money. But our very actions are helping us fight our sinful inclinations. And up to this point, we've passed over these two little words. With thanksgiving. Pray at all times. With thanksgiving. And this is the precise place where we're talking about distinctly Christian prayer. We're not talking about meditation. We're not talking about mindfulness. We're not talking about praying to something out there that will hear us. We're talking about praying to the Christian God. To pray is to boldly declare belief in an unshakable God while living in a world full of shakable things. To pray with thanksgiving is to declare belief in a loving God who has promised that the best is still yet to come when we see Jesus face to face. While living in a world where so many people can't look past their problems and pleasures of money. Through Paul's writings, Paul, God mandates thanksgiving. Not just for all of the good gifts that we have, which we always, especially in this country, have so many good gifts, even in our anxieties and our troubles. But thanksgivings for all that Jesus has secured for you and for me who have faith in Jesus. Jesus walked on this earth and responded to every uncertain situation with perfect trust and perfect worship of the Father. And this cost Jesus. This is the Jesus who had no place to lay his head. This is the Jesus of Gethsemane who literally sweat blood. This is the Jesus who stood before the crowd and said, give us Barabbas, kill Jesus. This is the Jesus who carried his own execution device out of Jerusalem and up onto the place of the skull, the hill. This is the Jesus who cries, it is finished. And his body hangs, the weight of his body hangs on the nails that are pierced into his hands and he suffocates. This is the God that says, come to me. Pray to me. I know the temptations through anxiety. I know the troubles. And we can pray to this God with thanksgiving because the reason that Jesus descends into the depths of brokenness is to grab hold of us and to bring us out and ascend to the heights of wholeness. As Peter says it, it's through Jesus that God has granted us many great and precious promises so that through them you, with faith, may become partakers of the divine nature. So as Christians, it is always appropriate to pray with thanksgiving to our loving and our gracious God who forgives us for our anxiety with lavish grace because of the blood of Christ and has given us precious, precious promises. And one of those promises will be the focus of our our last point. And it's this, our last point. God promises peace-filled presence. So we've read so far. Don't worry. Do pray. And now verse 7. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is God's promise to those who cast their anxieties on him. This is God's promise to those who respond to the rise of anxious thoughts with prayer. And I want to drill down into this. Just like we drill down into anxiety, I want to drill down into this promise of peace. First, we'll define the peace of God, 
and then we'll talk about how it's ours already, and then we'll talk about how it fits into God's plan, his global plan, and how it's not yet fully ours. So first, what's the peace of God? We defined anxiety as a vague feeling of apprehension, and we, or we could call it fracture. And so peace is a sense of tranquility, of harmony, of wholeness. And Paul uses the phrase peace of God because that's the only kind of peace that there is. Peace originates or comes from the inner Trinitarian life of God. So hear me out. Our God is three in one, three persons and one being. I always think of it as a triangle, Father, Son, Spirit. And they exist in perfect relationship eternally. And it's from that relationship, that perfect communion, that flows divine, unfathomable peace. God chooses to create a world to share that with us. He chooses to create you and me out of dust because he wants to give us what is only God's for eternity. And so what sin and evil is, it's the absence of God's active presence in the world, his active giving of peace and other good things. So that's what the peace of God is. Second, how does God promise to give it to us? Well, first, it's ours just in common grace, right? Um, the reason that the world isn't imploding, although sometimes these days it does feel like it's imploding, it's not. And the reason is because God is giving, God loves the world. God is giving the world some structure, even though we're sinful. But we who believe in Jesus have God's peace, his peaceful presence through special grace. The Bible teaches that when we trust Jesus with faith, God gives us the Holy Spirit. And we're even, called, we're even called temples. So think of like the temple of an idol. Um, you have an idol and you have a whole structure that gives kind of a house to it. God calls us a temple because our, his Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. And that means his peaceful presence is a gift through faith. And his presence comes with promises. Elsewhere, Paul says that every promise of God finds its yes in Jesus. So notice that little phrase in this promise in, in chapter, in Philippians 4, in Christ Jesus. And in this passage, God promises that when we respond to life and anxiety with prayer, the peace of God will guard us. God's peaceful presence will be guarding us. Isn't that, that's so much better than like the peaceful presence of God will chill out next to us. Like the peaceful presence of God is guarding your hearts and your minds. And, and we see in the surrounding context, I don't have time to, to jump into it, but the presence of God is on Paul's mind. Right before verse 6, the Lord is at hand. And at the end of this section, in verse 9, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. When he's guarding our hearts and our minds, he's guarding our wills and our understanding from turning away from the good commands of God, which are sweeter than honey and better than gold. That's how he's guarding us. So that's what the peace of God is. That's how he gives it to us in Christ Jesus. But we need to understand that God is not a genie. God is not someone who exists just to give us peace when we pray to him. 
The peace of God, which he gives to us by faith in Jesus, it fits into what he's doing in all of creation and what he has done and what he will do. And so let's consider how the peace of God, as precious as it is, is not yet fully ours because it's a piece of what God is doing. The story goes like this. God creates a world in Genesis 1 and 2 in perfect peace. Perfect what the Bible calls shalom. That's the Hebrew word for peace. And it's an, important, like, it's an important term throughout the Bible. God creates the world in shalom, in peace. And Adam and Eve choose to trust the promised peace of Satan, of the snake, and turn their backs on God's instructions for peace. And the world, you can think of it like this, these panes of glass. The world is a perfectly clean and intact piece of glass. And Adam and Eve take a hammer to it. And fracture and splinter come all over the world. Lack of peace. And in that shatter, God promises Abraham that he is going to make that piece of glass new. And we realize when Jesus, the Son of God, walks and is born into first century Israel, and when he goes through his ministry and dies on the cross, that God's plan to make that piece of glass new He's going to endure evil and suffering to undo evil and suffering and on the cross begin to reestablish peace on the earth. Jesus' death on the cross is the final blow to unrest and fracture. And it's the beginning of God's mending the piece of glass. It's not, God has chosen not to just replace the piece of glass. He's, he's fixing it. He's making it clean a little bit at a time. And one day, he says, you will live in a world again that is in perfect shalom. Listen to Revelation 21. And let the promise of God wash over you of what he is promising us in Jesus one day. Revelation 21. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is the peace of God that he promises you when you come to him in prayer. This is the peace of God that is ours in part now and in full, in the fullness of peace one day when he comes again. So here's what, how I want to conclude. Um, so what we've learned in this passage is that uh, God prohibits worry. And he says, don't worry, pray to me. Pray to me, the God who has nail-scarred hands because of you, because I love you. And he promises his presence that it will guard you. And, the, and so we want to take away from this passage, we want to walk out of here today with the sense that we need to pray to the God who is near because his peace will guard us. And here's how I want to close. I want to close with a confession. When I was studying this passage this week, I felt a bit of disappointment. Because, the reason I felt disappointed was because I, I, I just felt like I wish I had resolutions to my problems 
instead of the peace of God? Like, why couldn't it be when you pray to me, I'll solve all your problems? But as I, as I studied the passage, God showed me how my reaction was, was in error in two ways. First, God showed me that I was thinking about the peace of God with half-hearted imagination. What do I mean by that? When we imagine the good life, we have all kinds of commercials and movies and shows and stories that flood our minds and imaginations with the grandeur of being rich, fat, and happy in 21st century America because of all of our stuff, because of all of this supposed peace that we have. But my imagination and our imaginations need to be renewed. God is the fountainhead of all that is good. Any smile that has ever been brought to your face, it comes from God. And he is promising us that we will drink from the fountain of goodness one day. And we have to fight against a current to remember that that is the best thing that could ever happen to us. Not being rich, fat, and happy in 21st century America. The second problem with my reaction of disappointment to God's promise here was that I was forgetting the nature of the Christian faith. And this gets back to how I started the sermon, um, this paradox. The journey of our faith, of our glorious faith, is going deeper and deeper and deeper into reality, into what is actually real. That means that we don't get to detach from the world, whether through meditation or mindless distraction or luxurious escape. Instead, Jesus goes out before us and he calls us to go with him into the valley of the shadow of death so that we can go with him out the other side and climb the mountaintop of his love and his grace, the love and the grace of the eternal Trinitarian God of the universe. And this means, though we won't always feel the goodness of this, it means that it is good that God's peaceful presence coexists with our sufferings, coexists with our real troubles, comforts in our trials, and is not necessarily always a finger snap of resolution. It means that we'll have to wait to get our tears wiped away by Jesus' own nail-scarred hand in the new heavens and the new earth. Jesus is plain in John 16. In this world, you will have trouble. But here are his next words. But take heart. I have overcome the world. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this message from King's Cross Church in Manchester, New Hampshire. Please feel free to share or distribute this content, but do not charge for it or alter the content in any way without permission. King's Cross Church exists to treasure, proclaim, and grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. To find out more about King's Cross Church, please visit us at kingscrossmanchester.com.